Je n'avais jamais ôté mon chapeau devant personne. You're listening to To Whom It May Concern, a live show in Los Angeles, California, where folks read their letters on stage. Real letters they've written or received, improvised letters based on audience suggestions, and the letters we wish we could write. Grant Pachoco, a letter show favorite, reads a wonderful letter he wrote as a child to his hero. Good evening, everybody. Hello. Uh, the year is 1986. I have just turned 12. Uh, like most young boys my age, I was swept up in the pandemic that was sweeping the nation, and that is Hulkamania, pro wrestling. I loved it, and I watched it every week. It was my favorite thing to watch. I drove my parents crazy, um, but my favorite personality was not Hulk Hogan. Uh, it was not any wrestler uh, you may have heard of. My favorite personality was actually a professional wrestling manager named Jimmy Hart, the Mouth of the South. He. <laughs> was my absolute favorite person. If you don't know uh, who he was, he was a real skinny, scrawny guy. He always wore these loud, obnoxious jackets and costumes. He carried a megaphone around with him wherever he went, <laughs> and he would scream instructions to his uh, wrestlers while they were in the ring, and they would usually take the megaphone and bash the other guy over the head with it to win the matches. He was a bad guy, and I loved him, even though he was a bad guy. <laughs> while everyone else loved the good guys, I loved Jimmy Hart. So much so that in sixth grade, for career day at my intermediate school, I dressed up as Jimmy Hart because that's who I wanted to be. This is the August-September 1986 edition of World Wrestling Federation magazine, and I will now read this letter that is right here on the inside. Editor, please print the following letter to Jimmy Hart. My name is Grant the Mouth of the South Pachoco. I like you very much. And I would love to talk to you personally, even for just a minute. At school, I talk about you and write about you every chance I get. People at school think that I'm crazy to like you, but I know that I am a lucky individual. <laughs> I liked your comments about ugh, the junkyard dog and his song at the Slammies. I have a picture of you and Terry Funk on my wall. With your permission, I'm going to be just like you when I grow up. I hope they make a rubber figure of you and Terry. Well, stay on the top of the charts. See ya, number one Jimmy Hart fan, Grant Pachoco, Burlingame, California. Thank you. And just as a, a quick update to what's happened in the years since then, I did get to meet Jimmy Hart. Uh, thank you. And it was longer for than just a minute. It was very nice. They did make a rubber figure of Jimmy Hart. And uh, as far as that part about being just like him when I grow up, um, if you tune into the nationally syndicated uh, championship wrestling from Hollywood, you can see me ringside every week on your TV. So that's it. Thank you very much. Good night, everybody. Arlene Schindler reconnects with an old flame on Facebook. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Good evening. Everybody can find an old flame on Facebook. And Bruce was a guy I dated from high school. We actually dated right after high school graduation. But recently, I friended him on Facebook and wrote this email. 
Dear Bruce, you and I dated briefly, summer after high school. I think we shared mono together, <laughs> not stereo. Bruce wrote back. But we did have fun while it lasted. Remember sneaking into Aqueduct Racetrack and hanging out till some old guy came by and asked us to leave? And that block party, the whole block of neighbors who knew you and thought we were great together? I did have mono that year for about three months. Ended by June-ish. Then I started hitchhiking to California in August. We were dating up until I left. I loved you so much but I also knew I had to make the trip I'd been planning for most of the last year. I knew it was important to my growth and my future. I wished you would have joined me. After a few days on the road with my friend Manny, we had the opportunity to jump an open boxcar on a freight train. It was sitting on the edge of the floor of the train car, watching nature pass by, lit only by starlight that I began to relax and find a peace I had hoped existed but would never find while still living in the chaos of my parents' house. After a bunch of adventures and few weeks in California, I realized I had to see it through. I had to stay and discover who I was in a new place far from the craziness of Howard Beach. I felt like my life depended on it. The hardest part of all was you. I wanted you to join me. Asking you about doing this in many conversations, and if I recall correctly, you thought about doing it, but it tore you up to consider leaving your family and some other plans you had for your life. I didn't want to see you in such pain, so I decided to call us off so you could stay in New York and have the life you wanted, the life we both thought would be best for you. I figured if I ended it, you wouldn't feel guilty about staying on your path or leave it to be with me and have regrets. There are very few things I have done in my life that was as painful as hurting you that way. I just felt it was the honorable thing to do, even if you hated me, which I knew could easily be the case. I thought it was the best way for you. Almost a year later, when I was back in New York for a while, I tried to get together with you to talk about it and see if things were working out for you. But mostly because I missed the hell out of you and I wanted to see if things had changed and who knows. But you wouldn't see me and I don't blame you for not. It took an armload of courage to call you in the first place. In any case, thanks for giving me enough to want to say hello on Facebook. Isn't he romantic? <laughs> I wrote back, Bruce, we did share mono together, but the rest of the romance part, the racetrack, the block party, colorful, vivid memories. That was not me. <laughs> Maybe you're thinking I'm my best friend, Beryl. Not sure. Either way, here's something about you that was memorable for me. I had very long hair then, most of us did, and you convinced me that I'd still be pretty, maybe even prettier, if I shed my adolescent locks for a more womanly hairstyle. I would have gone with you to California if you'd asked me. I was eager to, but somehow afraid. I would have loved an excuse or partner in crime. 
I did move to L.A. in 91 when I was sent by ABC to help develop a late-night talk show. I've lived there ever since, but I forgot to have children. Bruce wrote back, color me confused. <laughs> Beryl, your friend, was a whole nother story. You didn't sneak into Aqueduct Racetrack with me? You look so much like that girl. <laughs> ah, well, what, what did we do? I responded. We went to Central Park and Washington Square Park and had mononucleosis together. Maybe someone else we both know on Facebook can remember it all for us. Where is Beryl? Maybe she's on LinkedIn. <laughs> Let's go friend her. Thank you. Robin Roberts reads a disturbing letter from the poet Anne Sexton's past. So, uh, when I was 17, I competed for and won a place in a Girl Scout arts conference at Northern Michigan University. There were 180 Girl Scouts from all over the country and from foreign countries. We lived in the dorms like college students, and we attended five classes a day for two weeks in the arts, drama, art history, music, dance, and literature. And I got in because I had good literature tendencies. My literature teacher took a liking to me and we started a correspondence. Dearest Robin, how lovely. Good to hear from you. I wondered whatever happened to you, how things were going. He's talking about the College of Creative Studies. He said, all that shit there is terrible. I hope you work out a schedule of stuff you want to take. They damned well better let you in. No, I'm not rich, haha, or famous, though the intruder is getting some excellent reviews. I'm working toward, who knows, a third volume, but need time off to do much. All the shit here. I had a wild summer that changed my life. I mean it. I brought Ann Sexton here. I'd known her, friends for eight years, and we both fell deeply in love with each other. A fact which has caused problems. I ended up twice in Boston that summer. That's where she lives. We went to Breadloaf together up in Vermont. I then tried to split from my wife, a long story there, but couldn't do it. Annie threatened suicide and then tried it twice. She's now okay, and I'm in therapy, trying to work out a lot of stuff to cut through all that shit inside. Who knows how things will come out. So, I've been through sort of pure joy and hell at the same time. But I'm functioning, writing a little. Early in the summer, my family and I spent a week in New Mexico in Santa Fe and had a lovely time there. That brings you quickly, hurriedly, sort of, up to date. We're having enrollment problems here, especially trouble with our English majors. We need to change our program drastically to open it up, get rid of all the shitty requirements if we intend, as a department, to survive. Thanks for the letter. I love hearing from you. I still have your sailboat picture above my desk, look at you every day, am still waiting for that other picture you said you'd send but never did. Where is it? Love, Phil. Great stuff. Anyway, thank you very much. An interesting side note. As Robin read her letter, an audience member pointed out the fact 
that that very night was the anniversary of Anne Sexton's death, a fact neither Robin nor I were previously aware of. Patrick Bristow and Grant Bichoco improvise an odd and hilarious burst of correspondence based on the audience suggestion of a cease and desist letter. Dear Mr. Thomas Van Ness, I am sending you this cease and desist letter as opposed to having a lawyer send it because I do not have very much money. However, I hope you will both cease, to, cease and desist. Backspace. Cease and desist. <clears throat> you see, your last name may be Van Ness, but I own the trademark of Van Ness for streets, areas, cities, municipalities, and functions. You can no longer use your own last name as I, as I said, own the international trademark for all rights reserved in this, the known universe, and all other dimensions to be discovered in the future. Please forward this cease and desist letter to your other Van Ness relatives and start thinking about a new name. Yours truly, Robert Van Ness. Dear Robert, I was shocked to receive your letter stating that you own the international copyright and trademark to the name Van Ness. This is a quandary to me. I wonder, have you taken this up with the city of San Francisco? And have they responded? And how did they respond? Answer both of those. Until I see some further proof that you do in fact own this trademark or receive a letter from a lawyer, you cheapskate, I will continue using the name Vaness and will not forward at all this letter to any of my relatives. Signed, yours, Thomas Vaness, underline. Dear Mr. Vaness, your angry scrawl at the bottom of your letter only made me more adamant in my determination to stop you from using the name appellation Van Ness. Yes, I did contact San Francisco. That would be the first place I would contact because of Van Ness Street. Guess what? They're considering it. They consider everything. <laughs> Furthermore, I have enclosed a photocopy that I made at the public library of Van Ness TM and Van Ness Copyright. Note the small C in the small circle at the bottom. Thank you, Mr. Van Ness. Dear Robert, oh boy. I was shocked to receive your reply, thinking that this must be some sort of joke and a one-off letter. But no, here you are writing again. I am not surprised that San Francisco is considering it. Bunch of liberal hippies up there. Considered doing anything. I mean, really, have you seen their mayor? Ugh. <laughs> anyway, I am not going to stop using the name Van Ness for several reasons. First, I have used it in my family for as long as I can remember. Yes, we have always been Vanessas. Another thing is, I have just spent $6,000 on Van Ness monogrammed blazers for the family to wear at our big reunion coming up this summer. I do hope that you will come to this reunion this summer because the entire Van Ness clan would like to meet you and know what branch of the tree you fell off of. Period. Thomas Van Ness. Thomas Van Ness. 
First of all, I dropped off no branch of the tree as I'm adopted, but I wear the Van Ness name with pride, more pride than you do, evidently. Your blazers sound tacky and stupid. The reason I couldn't afford a lawyer is because my dog, Dolores, just needed 18 teeth removed. Chihuahuas are prone to dental problems, so that's where my money went. Thanks for making me feel like shit. Now, as for you and the other Van Nesses, of which I'm sure there's one named Vanessa Van Ness, if you do not cease and desist, I will have to take more radical action. I am not above poison pen letters, subscribing you to magazines that you don't want and that will be embarrassing to be seen on your front doorstep. Also, I am not above doing certain illegal things. Guess. <laughs> Dear Robert, ha 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 ha! Ha ha ha! No. I'm right outside your door. <laughs> Jessie Trouth reads a letter that guided her through her darkest hour. This letter gave me. The support and the words in here provided strength that helped me turn things around and say, no, I'm going to be in love with life again. I'm not done. And uh, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to find it. And uh, all of a sudden, here I find myself on stage for the first time since I was sick. And uh, you know what? feels pretty darn good. (laughs) So... Without further ado, here's the letter. And on the back, she has a little stamp with a window opening up into the sea. And it says, dance your own song. Darling Jessie, thank you, dearest. First of all, for that lovely, whimsical garden fairy plaque who flourishes in my witchy kitchen. Um, Annie is an actress, by the way. Oh, I told you that, but she lives in this... um, rent-stabilized apartment in Midtown in New York. Um, She's, like, got plants coming out the walls. It's awesome. Um, So hanging on a kitchen flower pot as we speak or write. And for your beautiful letter, so artfully done, it's a pleasure to look at and read as well. I love the wedding photos. My sister was married last summer. What a gorgeous group. And you... My vibrant, brilliant Jessie, surrounded by love, restored in nature, rest and walk, dance in moonlight, in quiet, in stillness. Inspiration will never desert you. You are a light, a burning star, and your path continues in creativity. No matter what direction, though you are so young, this quote came to me. It's Dante, of course. (laughs) Quote, in the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. This is the truth that brought him to write the divine comedy. And isn't life that? Through all the horror and beauty, the darkness is unpleasant, and only those with courage enter it, because there lies the way, the truth. You have courage, Jesse, lots of it, and you will find that next turn in the road in good time, and all you are enduring will feel like clues, blessings in disguise, 
You are singular, original, a forger of paths, a frontier girl. You are brave, Jesse. As for me, the show closed December 22nd. I never went on, but lessons were learned. The possibilities to perform in another, it in other places are looming. I have a month-long gig in a fine play called The Hummingbirds Tour at Bucks County Playhouse in Pennsylvania. Uh, it runs late March through April, so that will be good. Keith, and let me tell you, Keith is her husband, um, is going through more disturbing medical problems. But when he gets through this one, I'm using my ill-gotten gains, um, commercial money, to take my sweet fella to Disney World for a week. <laughs> what the hell is money for if not fun? <laughs> Especially after enduring suffering. Ah, any time is good for fun. I love you and hold you always in my heart. Love, Annie. My name is Jane Entwistle. And I'm a producer on To Whom It May Concern. And I read a letter dedicated to the bartenders of Los Angeles. Dear bartenders of Los Angeles, I owe you an apology, collectively. There are too many of you to track down individually and give each of you a letter. So I am writing to you en masse. I'm sorry. I truly am. I still carry around the guilt of what I did, and I can only pray that none of you were affected too harshly. I was desperate, willing to sacrifice a tribe I once belonged to in order to keep myself afloat. Los Angeles can be a hard, demanding place when you are lost and broke. Hell, it can be a hard, demanding place when you have money and GPS. <laughs> right? Am I right? As with most of my more random Hollywood stories, this one starts with, so I answered an ad on Craigslist. <laughs> my job was to go to assigned bars with a very healthy stipend in my pocket and drink. I was not allowed to go alone. I was required to bring friends, and we had to drink the entire stipend provided. Karaoke bars, fancy bars, gay bars, dive bars, oh, we didn't discriminate. We sang, we drank, we ate. I became very popular with regular calls from friends asking if I had to work that night. That they would be willing, if necessary, to sacrifice and assist me with my job of getting paid to drink. <laughs> Everyone loved it. Had a laugh. Everyone but me. In exchange for the money and pay to go to bars and get loaded... I had to report on any discrepancies I saw. Catching people stealing, breaking health codes, drinking on the job, and giving away drinks. If there was anyone more ill-suited for the job, it was me. <laughs> I couldn't lie to my employer about what I saw, yet I wanted desperately to protect you, the worker. Sometimes you were so nice to me, breaking the very rules I was to document, that I would silently will you into good behavior. What was a dream come true for my broke friends was a hazard of the heart for me. <laughs> it finally took the dog's blue balls to free me from my guilt and subsequently that godforsaken job. The dog's blue balls was a bar. <laughs> I was assigned 
to investigate. It was much farther out than I was used to going and came with a hefty stipend. I took two friends with me, and while I am willing to risk my own safety by writing you this letter, I wish to protect theirs so they shall henceforth be known as Connie and Steve. We were still puzzling over the name of the bar when we pulled up alongside the row of motorcycles parked outside. The last place you feel comfortable being a spy is in a biker bar named the Dog's Blue Balls. We went inside, and I immediately regretted my choice to move to Los Angeles and look for work on Craigslist. <laughs> Connie and Steve huddled together at the bar while I whispered that I had to use the restroom, and they were not to order anything until I returned as I needed to observe the bartender in action. No sooner had I secured myself in the bathroom stall than I received a text from Steve. Holy shit, the bartender has already had two shots, given away three drinks, and pocketed $20. I returned to the bar and ordered a beer. What size? snarled the barkeep. Big or small? <laughs> the big beer was in a mug larger than my head and required two hands to hold. The three of us occupied two stools, sipping from our boats of beer, keeping as close to one another as possible, and trying to cover the university logo on Steve's hoodie, <laughs> which felt to us like a neon sign flashing the words, we don't belong here and we're as soft as cheese. <laughs> the surly bartender appeared from the back room with a tray of homemade jello shots and began passing them out to everyone in the bar, except, of course, to us. I wondered where jello shots from home would appear on the observation form I was to turn in. As it was, I could hardly keep track of the shots taken by the bartender, the flow of cash straight into her pocket, and the beers handed out without anything in return. Suddenly, she growled at a tiny woman sitting at the bar to get her ass behind the bar. The woman looked terrified, but scrambled to take her place. Suddenly, the air felt electrified, and everything went deadly quiet. We spun around in our seats, trying to find the cause of the sudden shift. The bartender came slowly out from behind the bar and planted herself, legs apart, fists clenched, facing the door. The door burst open with a bang, and three burly figures blocked out the light shining through the doorway. Everyone gasped, and the bartender muttered something under her breath. Bikers shook their heads solemnly, and Connie, Steve, and I scooted closer together, grasping our giant goblets of beer, both for comfort and protection. <laughs> the three shapes in the doorway moved as one, taking slow steps, edging into the light, cursing and muttering. They were red-faced, beefy, wearing matching clothes and shockingly intense mullets. <laughs> they were obviously sisters. <laughs> the women stared each other down, and as they slowly advanced towards one another, one surly bartender to three meaty sisters, I realized too late that their convergence would happen directly behind our seats. Before I could raise the alarm to Steve and Connie, the fight was upon us. My God, it was like being in the eye of a tornado. 
Mullets were yanked, punches were thrown, onlookers cheered, and I grappled for my phone, frantically calling my boss, praying she would answer in person. The fighters pressed into our backs, tossing us from side to side in our seats as they tried like holy hell to pummel each other to death. No longer caring about our cover being blown, I screamed into the phone, asking my boss what the hell the protocol was when fearing for one's life when on assignment. She said, no matter what, get a goddamn receipt. <laughs> the fighters eventually tired, and the mullet sisters joined friends at a nearby table, collapsing into their seats. The bartender returned to her post behind the bar, did a shot, and refilled our glasses. She even served the mullets as if they'd never thrown a punch. That night, the dog's blue balls shook me to my core. The fight... The bikers, the environment was scary. But what was more terrifying was my fear of being found out and having my deception pounded out of me by a mullet's meaty fist. <laughs> Much to the disappointment of my friends, that was my last assignment. <laughs> but I was far from disappointed. I felt light, unburdened, temporarily free of guilt and shame. Los Angeles has meted out some wicked hard lessons. I am only sorry that the lesson of being true to myself was learned while revealing the sometimes bad and sometimes generous, though misplaced habits of you, our Los Angeles bartenders. Humbly yours, Jane. Mothers once warned us never to sing along to the songs that the Mistral sing. The musician for this episode is the bewitching Madeline Tasca. And the tale I tell you now is a testament. You have been listening to To Whom It May Concern, produced by Jane Entwistle and Justin Crane, and recorded live at the Lyric Hyperion Theater and Cafe in Silver Lake, California. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean so you never miss a single letter. And if you have a letter you would like to submit, even if you live far, far away, we'll read it for you. Visit readyourletter.com. Michel, Michel, Mistral nous appelle avec sa voix séduisante. Il chante, il chante. <laughs>